Hello, and welcome to the Verse Verse Podcast. My name is Justin Thomas, and I'm really excited for our journey from Genesis to Revelation a couple of chapters a week. My goal is that you would grow in your ability to understand the story that the Bible tells as a whole, as well as your ability to read the Bible for yourself. I would love to connect with you on social media. You can find us at verse slash verse, all spelled out, on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in. First Samuel 27. Lord willing, we'll finish the book of First Samuel tonight. As you've probably caught from the title of the book, uh, that will land us in Second Samuel next week. And as we will see tonight, originally 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel were one book. Probably they've been divided because of length and convenience. Um, and so the story ends at an appropriate place, a true ending, uh, but we're going to pick up directly on the heels of that ending next week. Tonight we get kind of our final contrast between David and Saul. I want you to notice as we move through the story tonight, these chapters aren't in chronological order. They're, they're edited like a good movie so that it sustains tension and we don't know what's going to happen until um, the curtain's revealed and we're told more of the story that we missed. Uh, another way to think of it, and this is true of a good deal of Hebrew literature, is like that children's book, Meanwhile Back at the Ranch, where it just jumps between scenes and tells two simultaneous stories at the same time moving back and forth between them. And so you'll notice that we start with David. And when we left David last week, he again had spared Saul's life, demonstrated that he was innocent of all charges, that he had no grudge against Saul, that he wasn't gunning for his life or for his throne. Uh, And then we saw again that Saul seemed penitent and even grieved uh, about chasing David. And so notice chapter 26 The last thing Saul says to David in their lifetimes, Saul said to David, blessed be you, my son, David, you will do many things and will succeed in them. So it says, David went his way and Saul returned to his place. But verse one of 27, David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. So notice the desperation in David here. He feels He's so limited uh, that the only option he can think of is to flee to the land of Philistia, Israel's sworn enemies, because at least there he'll be safe from Saul. And so he says, then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I'll escape out of his hands. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. Now this is actually David's return to Gath. Uh, the last time he was all on his own, and it was his first place of desperation. And so once he realizes that he's recognized there, everybody knows that this is David the Uh, killer of Goliath, whose hometown is Gath, uh, David, who has slain thousands of Philistines, he realizes he's made a wrong move. And so he pretends to be crazy so that they don't feel threatened by him, and then he gets out of town. Here is different. David is walking in with 600 men, uh, and this time it appears he has a plan. Now, notice it mentions uh, here Achish. It is possible here that Achish, like Pharaoh, 
like many other names of kings in the Middle East, is a title and not a name. And so it may even be that this is an Achish senior who we encountered earlier, but Achish Jr., his son. In fact, by referencing here the son of Maok, king of Gath, it, it may actually be implying just that. But even if it's the same guy, notice that things play out differently this time. Verse 3, David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. And so the plan works, and he settles into the city of Gath with his 600 men. Now, Gath is one of the five major cities of the Philistines, but for this area, it's still probably not tremendously large. And so 600 new occupants is going to make a stir. It's not just going to be visible, it's going to be annoying. Uh, and so, verse 5, David said to Achish, If I found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? And so he basically comes and he says, I'm a bother living here among your people. Why don't you just give us one of the smaller villages and we'll just take it over? And he has a specific plan here. As we're going to see, he's going to function in a military capacity for the Philistines. Um, but by moving 25 miles away to Ziklag, he gets a little bit of autonomy. And he's able to do so without someone checking his notes, without someone looking over his shoulder, which is going to be essential to David's plan. Verse 6, so that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. It was a perpetual property of Judah, of Israel. And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Okay, So he works for Achish for a year and four months, a Philistine king as a military general. Now you may remember both the Philistines and especially the Amalekites, who we'll see a little bit later, had taken up a habit of raiding. And so what they would do is they would fly in as quick as possible, uh, unexpected, unannounced, into the land of Israel, ransack a town, take as much loot as they could, and bring it back to their places. Uh, that becomes David's primary operation. Now, as you can imagine, there's a serious tension there, right? This is the anointed king of Israel who's now under the employ of Israel's greatest enemies, and so what David does here is he makes raids in the land of Israel, but not against the Israelites. He makes it instead against the Canaanite occupants of the land uh, that Israel was supposed to knock out anyways. And then he just quietly allows the king, Achish, to believe that he's attacking his own people. But he's not. Okay? Um, and so notice verse 8, David and his men went up and made raids against the Gershurites, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites, for these were in the inhabitants of the land from old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. So in other words, he's working in the territory of Judah. And these are the people that Judah was originally supposed to uproot from the land and never did. Okay. And so David is continuing this holy war that goes all the way back to the days of Joshua. In fact, he does it to the requirement. Look at verse 9. David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, and the donkeys, and the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. So, just as was required in the book of Joshua, because God was bringing judgment on the Canaanites, he wipes out these communities in their entirety. 
and he takes all of the loot and he brings that out and he shares it with the Philistines. That's what it means when it says that he brought them back to Achish. Verse 10, when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of the Jeremelites or against the Negev of the Kenites. Now, all three of those, Judah, the Kenites, uh, which is where Caleb comes from, and the Jeremelites, uh, which are friends of the Israelites, not Israelites proper, they're all people uh, that are enemies of the Philistines, but not enemies of David. And so he's being vague and saying the Negev, which just means the Southland, he tells them the general area and the primary occupants, but not actually the people that he's attacked. He doesn't mention the Geshurites, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites. And so for a year and four months, David continues these raids for the Philistines without actually becoming an enemy of Israel. Now notice this holy war purpose served him for another reason. By leaving none of the original occupants alive, he also kept quiet uh, his masquerade. Verse 11, David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he's made himself an utter stench to the people of Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. And so David pulls the wool over Achish's eye to the degree that he goes, okay, he is now hated by his own people, which means he can be my general till he dies. He's permanently a Philistine, okay? Now, there's not necessarily any um, need to justify David here. This is not necessarily uh, a place where we should seek to emulate David. This deception is at, at best a necessary evil. Um, but it is, it is interesting that in doing this, he does exactly what a leader of Israel was supposed to be doing. Okay? Removing the old enemies from the land uh, and, and simultaneously as he's doing this, he earns the trust of the Philistines, okay? Now, here's the thing that David doesn't see coming, okay? We'll get to this in just a minute. Um, but the thing that he doesn't see coming is eventually the Philistines collectively are going to go against Saul. That's the tension we should be feeling as we're reading this book is, what is David going to do when he's called to battle against Israel directly? When he's called not just to battle against Israel, but against Israel's king, the king who he's supposed to replace, the one who he swore he would not slay because he was God's anointed. Okay? If, if we can say anything about David during this time, uh, it's, it's that there's a lack of wisdom in his plan. Okay? Um, now the scene moves, and it moves to... Um, Verse 1, in those days the Philistines gathered for forces for war to fight against Israel, and Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. This is that greatest fear that I was talking about, right? Here, the whole army of all five cities of the Philistines is going to assemble against Saul, and basically Achish says, you're with me, right? Verse 2, David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do, a clear non-answer. Right? He doesn't say anything except, I guess you're going to see. 
You're going to see what I can do, right? It's very ambiguous. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So how does Achish take it? He takes it as David's all in. And so he says, all right, I'm, I'm appointing you to this position, permanent bodyguard, okay? You're going to be my protector. Now, that's just set up to lay the tension, and then the scene moves in verse 3. Now, Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. That's just context for what follows next. Verse 4. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. Okay, now notice the way this story is told, it's as if David, who's all in, is camped here uh, at Shunem with the rest of the Philistines, and here comes Saul and his armies at Gilboa. As we'll see, chronologically, that's not actually the case, but the tension is left here for us so that we feel it. As if the armies can see one another, as if somebody with an eagle eye could say, wait a minute, is that David and his men standing with the Philistines? But this is mentioned, and then notice verse 5, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. And so Saul is kind of overwhelmed by the size of the armies. He's been here before. He's feeling unsettled about the battle that's supposed to happen right here. And so he seeks to inquire of the Lord. But all the doors are now closed to Saul. As we already saw, Samuel is dead. Okay, uh, He has no connection with any other prophets. Gad is with David. Uh, it says here that he could not receive anything in the way of um, the Urim and the Thummim. Uh, and so it says, by Urim there, uh, that's because basically all of the living priests Saul had killed off. The only one who's left, uh, Abiathar, has fled and is also with David. And so he has no one to inquire of the Lord from the priesthood. And it also mentions here that God isn't speaking to him directly through the means of dreams. And so all he gets is just the brass ceiling of heaven, radio silence, no assurance, no encouragement whatsoever. And so, verse 7, Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. Now we understand the context that was given a little bit earlier. During Saul's reign, as Deuteronomy required, all practicers of necromancers, mediums, psychics, and the like had been driven out of the land. And now, almost like, um, almost like the spindles in Sleeping Beauty, Saul goes, I bet I missed one. I bet there's still one in the kingdom somewhere. So he sends his servants to look for a woman who speaks with the dead. If he can't get instructions from God, he's going to look wherever there can be. And it's worth pointing out that as, as this story follows, it's clear that the problem that Deuteronomy has with necromancy, with those who speak to the dead, uh, with mediums and psychics and such, is not that they're frauds. That's not where the complaint is. The, the reality of the spiritual realm and even the access to it is assumed in the story. Okay? We have a tendency to despise these things as moderns uh, because we believe that it's all a fraud. Uh, I was reading G.K. Chesterton and he was alive when Arthur Conan Doyle and a few others had this revival of spiritualism. 
and they started going, actually, maybe there's something to this. And the way that Chesterton always argued is, I actually think I understand the spiritual world better than you do. My problem is not that there might be hucksters making a table float. My problem is that you're just assuming any access to the spiritual realm is good, that it's positive. You think that somebody can lie on earth and that's not what's happening, but the idea that there could be spiritual lies is unbelievable to you. And he said, that's where the real problem with these things is. It's, it's not that human beings can be deceptive with these things, although let's be honest, of course they can. That's why Harry Houdini's great campaign against these uh, was so helpful. Um, but also, even when it does work, you're still making yourself available tremendously to something you do not understand and something that has not only a good side, a good spirituality, but also an evil side. And so here, uh, Saul ignores the command of Deuteronomy, and it's almost ironic, isn't it? Because when we go back and when Saul refuses to kill King Agag, Samuel basically says, your rebellion is worse than the sin of witchcraft. And apparently Saul goes, well, I guess this is open to me now. I've already completed this horrible sin, so witchcraft is okay. Um, But more likely here, he just feels stuck. As we're going to see, he hasn't even forsaken his religious formalities. He just always puts his righteousness in the wrong place. He always settles for the wrong rules. And so the idea of invoking the dead and seeking out spirits when God has closed his mouth to Saul uh, is not problematic, but he does maintain a fast before the battle because that's the vows that Saul likes to make. Remember, that's what got him in trouble with his son, Jonathan. And so he says, go looking for one and his servants halfway through seven say to him, behold, there's a medium at Endor. And so he goes to this woman at Endar. Now notice, Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said. Notice here, he does it under the cover of darkness. He does it in disguise, and he does it with only a couple of people. So it can just look like average customers. He's not coming as the king. In fact, we'll see that the witch at Endor, once she recognizes that it's Saul, realizes the danger she's in. Because Saul is the one whose name was written on the law that kicked her out of town, that pushed her into hiding. So Saul comes into disguise and says, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name you. And the woman said, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? Now there's one of two things here. Either she's hung up her mysticism for good, and she says, I don't do that stuff anymore. It's, don't you know it's illegal? Uh, or this is just the standard line, you know, uh, like when you've got the casino behind the, uh, you know, behind the bar and you fence people before they get in. You go, come on, everybody knows gambling's illegal. We don't do that stuff here when you absolutely do. Um, but either way here, She lays it out and listen to Saul's answer because nothing, I think, encapsulates the character of Saul greater than this. Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Okay, the behavior of this woman is condemned to the full degree in the law of Deuteronomy with the death penalty. 
And here he says, I promise in the name of the Lord, the same one who authored the book of Deuteronomy, you'll live. Nothing will come to you. As you can see here, the, the Lord, this idea of God is useful to Saul when it's useful and completely ignored when it's not. And so here it's just a way to get what he wants and an ironic one because it's this same God who's refusing to speak to Saul because of his rebellion and rejection. And so he swears and the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. Now, this is the thing about sin in general. Sin isn't just wicked. It's generally and usually foolish. Okay? Uh, okay, so put yourself not in the shoes of a modern person who doesn't expect to be able to contact the dead. Put yourself in the shoes of Saul, who has sought out this woman, snuck there by night in disguise, and has an agenda. Why, of all people, would Samuel be the one he wants to talk to? He hasn't talked to Samuel since the day Samuel rejected him. Since the day he refused to kill King Agag. Samuel has kept his distance from Saul and now he's the one he wants to speak to in death. Let me broaden it out for you. There's a reason why the prophets, the dreams, and the Urim won't speak. It's because God is the one who employs those measures. Samuel is the prophet of Jehovah. There's a foolishness to this, um, but it's, it's the only thing he can think of. It's an act of desperation. He says, I want to talk to Samuel. Now, notice verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Now, at first reading, that's surprising because basically that's like pulling up to the window of the drive-thru and saying, can I have a cheeseburger? And then the person conjuring up a cheeseburger and then freaking out. Right? This is exactly what he ordered. This is what he asked for. Why is she so bothered? Evidently, whatever happens here is significantly different than what she's used to. Okay? Uh, like I said, the story here assumes spiritualists and such are, are real, that they're touching something. Like I said, the Bible in general assumes that that involves a good deal of demonic deception. But what happens here is something different. What happens here is the actual Samuel shows up. In some sense or reality, she realizes that her seance just got hijacked. Okay? And so she puts it all together and she goes, oh, wait a minute. If, if this is happening, then you must be the king of Israel. You're the one who put out these laws against me. This is Samuel, I don't want to say in the flesh, but in the flesh, right? So she's freaked out, and the king said to her, verse 13, Don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What's his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. Okay, Just the robe is the dead giveaway. That was prophetic garb. It's the same thing that Saul clutches uh, when Samuel is leaving him and Samuel lets it rip out of his hands and he says, so the kingdom will be torn out from you. He knows here that, that Samuel is now present. Now, notice how many details are lacking in this. Okay. We, we aren't given any form of invocation. There's very little details of how these things happen. In fact, it's hard for me in reading this to tell if Samuel is something that the woman is seeing or channeling uh, or if, if there's some sort of division in the room and when Saul enters into the room, he now sees what she sees. We're just not told. 
The author's not interested in that. It wants to be as vague as possible in these things. It reminds me of when the Bible says that basically we should be ignorant of evil. Okay? And so it doesn't give us all the dirty details uh, of, of the activity here. But it's enough that Saul knows he's found who he's looking for. And so he bows with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by the prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And so notice here, uh, once again, it seems like this is the real Samuel. And when he says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up, there's this implication of a place of the dead that Samuel was otherwise occupied, right? And has now come forward. The details aren't given, but it does align uh, with the other things that the Bible tells. Uh, For example, consider the story that Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus. Now, oftentimes, Jesus uh, or the narrator will tell us that Jesus told us a parable. But in the rich man and Lazarus, it's not mentioned to be such. Uh, In fact, if it is a parable, it's unique in the fact that it's the only one with a named character. The sower went out to sow. The good Samaritan helped the man along the road. The rich man still goes unnamed, but Lazarus receives a name. And when you hear the story that Jesus tells, it involves a poor man who was constantly begging at the gate of a rich man. And they both pass away. And they both end up in places. Okay. Uh, one, the one that Lazarus is in, is labeled by Jesus as being Abraham's bosom, which is probably just a personification of a place of comfort. Also, it's possible that it's basically a waiting room. Um, like if you've ever seen Beetlejuice, there's that waiting room limbo uh, that takes place. It's that type of thing. It's not a permanent destination. It's not the heaven and hell of Revelation. It's this holding pattern. Uh, In fact, it may even be that the New Testament points to the fact uh, that Jesus takes all of those who are awaiting his coming and brings them with him into paradise, into heaven, into what he opens up with his death once it's accomplished. Um, But either way here, there is this uh, reality to face that Samuel is here and he's present and he's talking and he's dead. And so Saul lays his case on the table. He says, I was out of options. God's not speaking to me, so I summoned you. Tell me what to do. And notice verse uh, 16, Samuel said, Why do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. In other words, Samuel says, I already told you. You know what this is. That's why you're so afraid. This is the day. This is the day I told you when the kingdom is taken from you and given to your neighbor. And here he's named as David, which originally at the time Saul uh, is confronted by Samuel. That's unknown information. Verse 18, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. And so he says, 
This is your last day. This is your last day as king. This is your last day alive. Tomorrow the battle will go poorly. You and many of your sons will die. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the use of a medium like the witch at Endor is deserving, according to Deuteronomy, of capital punishment. And God meets that out directly here. Um, but it's also interesting that uh, Samuel, as a book, begins and ends with these significant acts of judgment in the midst of the battle with the Philistines, as prophesied by Samuel. Remember Samuel's first case as a prophet, his first day on the job is to tell Eli that because of the wickedness of his sons and because of Eli's refusal to interfere in that and to bring consequence on his children, uh, that they're all going to die. And that comes to, case, uh, comes to be the case when uh, his sons are out on the front lines and they die there and then the ark is taken away and then Eli in his old age hears about it and he, he basically has a heart attack, falls over and breaks his neck. And here at the end, we see again a significant act of judgment, this time on Saul and his children because of Saul's disobedience. Verse 20, Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And so we see here that this is all happening while Saul is fasting. And maybe this is... This is mind-blowing, but it's not out of Saul's reach. Maybe it's because he's invoking a spiritualist and he wants to make sure that he's pure. And so he fasts for that reason. More likely, I would suggest to you that this is standard battle behavior for Saul. Okay? And it's either battle behavior in the sense that he is trying to purify himself before battle because it's the Lord's battle, which is ironic because he's consulting a medium. Uh, before he does so or it may just be Saul's personal policy that this is how he wins battles he promises not to eat and asks God to give him the victory and last time we saw that the problem he caused was that Jonathan didn't know about this vow and he broke it unknowingly and Saul was ready to take his life over it here it's that he literally does not have strength for the message he just received and so he collapses in this woman's tent Verse 21, the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. And so she basically says, I risked my life on your behalf. I listened to your word. Now you listen to me and let me feed you, or you're going to die. It's, it's uh, I think, a good reminder here okay, that we need to maintain the distinction between uh, somebody who does a sin that is wicked and writing that person off as a monster. She's compassionate. She has compassion on this guy despite the fact that he betrayed her, despite the fact that he ruined her career, drove all of her family and friends out of town. She knows danger when she sees it and she says please just let me let me nurse you back to health it's striking isn't it I think one of the biggest mistakes we make in modern America is that we tend to take the most wicked sins and assume there's no goodness left in those who commit them 
And so even, even when it comes to uh, things like the Me Too movement, we relegate those who have broken the laws of our culture, who have done oftentimes terrible sexual thing, sins, to being subhuman or, or monstrous. Uh, and that's a really scary thing because it tends to push these things into the shadows when they reside in our own hearts. And so, for example, there was that lady, one of the first people to come out against Weinstein, and we just found out that she was paying off her own accuser. It, it's a dangerous place to be in, and it's part of the reality of this thing. And then there's also this other aspect, uh, that when we, when we demonize sin, not only do we dehumanize the sinner, but we also put ourselves at risk. If you ever get the chance, I know I talk about Chesterton a lot, but he, um, he did a whole collection, I think there's 59 of them, uh, of short mystery stories called Father Brown. Uh, and they were his answer to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle because he felt like this idea that um, everything could be solved with just observation, he felt like it was missing the most distinct part of how crime actually works, which is human nature. And so the idea behind Father Brown is everybody thinks he's too innocent to understand how the world really works, but he sits in the confessional every week. He knows what's in the human heart. And the, the moral of the story consistently in the Father Brown stories is that it's the normal people who co commit horrendous crimes just because of really normal, natural reasons. Basically, if you read Father Brown, murder stems from stuff that we deal with all the time. It just escalates and gets out of control. It catches us off guard. The Bible takes no time to tell us how the witch at Endor became such. But she's a human being. She has a heart. And that's the thing about, um, that's the thing about this idea of the image of God. All of us bear the mark of who God is. That means goodness. It means love. It's tarnished by the fall. It's broken in sin. It's bound to these other things. Um, but that's also what makes human beings worth saving. It's, it's what makes uh, the, the sin actually so horrible. You know, C.S. Lewis likes to say, we never get mad at an animal for behaving like an animal. But we're always upset when a human being does. Okay? Because human beings were destined for more. And that's true of Saul. It's true of the witch here. And so he has compassion on her, and look at Saul's, first, his stubbornness, and then second, his total inability to keep his own word. Both of them exist. We've seen it over and over again. Verse 23, he refused and said, I will not eat, but his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to their words, so he arose from the earth and sat on his bed. This is the final act of Saul, and it reads just like all the other acts. Saul makes a stupid plan, Saul holds that plan until people talk him out of it, and then he lets it go. There's just no resolve, no constancy. Like I said, his feet is always in the wrong place. Instead of being slow to make a decision, he's swift to make a decision. Instead of uh, being quick to repent, he's, he has to be dragged across the line. And so here, verse 24, the woman had a fattened calf in the house. She quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. She put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Now, remember the tension here. 
We've added details to the story. Over here we have David waiting in the wings with the army of the Philistines. And now not only do we know that Saul's going to be on the front lines, but he's going to die in this battle. Is he going to die at the hands of David? Is that where these things are headed? Um, And so, chapter 29, verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that's in Jezreel. As the Lord of the Philistines were passing on hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing in on the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is that not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who's been with me now for days and years since he deserted to me? I found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. Now, not only is this broadly good thinking, there's also some experience that the Philistines have in their back pocket that makes this good advice. You may remember when Jonathan goes with his armor bearer and starts something with the Philistines, just the two of them, the turning point in the battle is when Hebrews, who had earlier surrendered to the Philistines and defected, see Jonathan and his armor bearer having so much victory, they instantly turn sides, and that's what wins the day. So now they look at this and they go, wait a minute, we've done this before. Are you telling me that we've got Hebrews in the ranks and you just want to go to battle against Saul? Last time we did this, we lost because they turned on us, okay? On top of that, this isn't just Hebrews, this is David. And so they say, send the man back that he may return to the place where you've assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this uh, fellow reconcile himself to the Lord Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Okay, so the last one is thinking like a Philistine. They go, okay, so if I had been exiled and I wanted to get back in the good graces of the king, wouldn't I bring the heads of my enemies? And so he says here, isn't this exactly what you'd expect David to do, to be on the front lines and then just kill everyone who's around him to get him back into the good graces of Saul? And then they say, is this not David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands. Remember, every time you read this, add in parentheses, of Philistines. Or even in this case, of us. Saul has struck down his thousands of us, and David his ten thousands of us. Now, Achish is so deep in David's pocket, he acquiesces to this, but listen to the way that he talks. Verse 6, Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out with me in the campaign, for I found nothing wrong in you from this day to your coming to me this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not approve to you. Notice a few things here. One, he swears by Jehovah. As the Lord lives, you've been honest and good to me. Now, it may be here that Achish has been impressed by David and therefore by David's God, and so he's using it in a respectful way. It may be that he's just, he just knows that David is a foreigner and so he speaks his language. Uh, it, also, it also could be that there's a mild rebuke, a divinely de- delivered rebuke from, uh, from the Lord himself in this. Listen to this language again, remembering what we know about David. Okay. Listen to the praise in the context of what we actually know. As the Lord lives, you've been honest. 
And to me it seems right that you should march out with me in the campaign, for I found nothing wrong in you from this day, from your coming to me to this day. He's convinced, look, you've always told me the truth. You've always been upright and upfront with me. I have nothing against you, but it's all a farce. David has been, has been hiding this. And then notice verse 7, so go back now. And go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. He says, will you do me this favor? For them, will you just leave even though I believe in you? Verse 8, David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day that I entered your service until now that I might not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And so it looks like he pushes back here and he says, that's not fair. You know that I'm here. I'm upright. But there is some ambiguity, isn't there, into what he says, the enemies of my lord, the king. Now, that could be Achish, but it could also be Saul, and it could also be Jehovah. It's, it's just empty placeholder language, but either way, notice that David doesn't know what's coming next, and so he wants to keep this door open. He doesn't just fess up. He doesn't, you know, uh, breathe a sigh of relief and wipe his brow and go, oh, that's good, because I really didn't want to go to battle today. Right? He maintains his facade. Verse 9, Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commander of the Philistines has said he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now you can make a comparison between David who serves Saul and David who serves Achish. And it once again becomes somewhat ironic. Because David serves Saul faithfully and honesty, and, in, and uh, Saul is convinced that he has it out for him. Here, he serves Achish dishonestly, and the guy has completely been won over and has no idea the danger he's putting himself in working with David. If anything, it just presses again the insanity of Saul's sin. Verse 10, Now then rise early in the morning with your servants of the Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have the light. Okay, so they say as soon as the sun gets up, you head home. Head home. Verse 11, so David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. And so now we find out that this battle that's happening, David isn't actually going to be present. Once again, we can see God sovereignly orchestrating David's life to protect him from sin. Last time he'd lost his temper and was in a place where he was going to commit blood guilt. And God sovereignly sends Abigail to cool him down, to ease him off, and he sees it for what it is. Now, he doesn't necessarily see this for what it is uh, here, but he's going to get the picture pretty quickly. Notice that as is often the case, that's not the end of the story. So, verse uh, 1 of chapter 30, when David and his men came to Ziklag, remember that's their hometown, on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. Now, remember, the Amalekites are the ones that Saul was supposed to wipe out, and he didn't. Okay. And so here they are, and while David and his men are away, the Amalekites swoop into Ziklag and take all of the women and children captive and burn the city. Verse 2, they'd taken captive all of the women who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but they carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with them raised their voices and wept 
until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinam of Jezreel and Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. And so he almost has a uh, mutiny on his hands. Because remember, these men have been following David through thick and thin. We can imagine that this idea of let's go work with the Philistines had mixed reviews. And here they are, and they go to battle, and now they come home, and everything they love is gone. Not only is all their property destroyed, but their families have been taken captive. And it says that they experienced a bitterness of soul, which I think we would recognize, and they hold David responsible. And I think it's worth pointing out, even here, there's, I think, I think one of the things we have to understand about David is he has a tremendously sensitive heart to the Lord. And he feels the weight of this. He knows that this is his responsibility, that he's brought this cause on. Uh, and it's amazing here that it says he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He's, he's not despairing. It doesn't say that he's not repentant. Um, but he does just basically, okay, um, say, all right, I've got to get back in tune with what the Lord is doing. It reminds me very much of Jacob. Okay. After Jacob uh, runs away from his family, he meets God in the wilderness. He has that dream of Jacob's ladder. He understands now that God is present. He's given him promises. And then he goes over and he basically takes the reign of his life and comes home with four wives and 12 kids and hatred behind him and hatred in front of him. Right? And so he wrestles with God in the middle of the night, and God causes him to limp. He makes him dependent upon him. And the next act of Jacob, once he kind of gets the point, he's renamed Israel. He goes, okay, I need to go back to Bethel. I need to go back to the place where God revealed himself to me. He turns to his family and says, bury all of your idols here under this tree. We're going back to the Lord. That's a much clearer and stronger version of what I would suggest is happening here with David. We haven't seen him in tune with the Lord during this year and four months of his life. He's just maintaining. But here, he gets back in touch with the Lord. In fact, look at verse 7. David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. Two things here. One, notice that Saul just did the same thing before the battle, except he went to a medium, a spiritualist. Here David goes to Abiathar, who's in his care. He inquires of the Lord, and the Lord speaks very positively. He says, not only should you pursue him, but you're going to rescue everybody. Okay? And so here it gives the opportunity for faith, the opportunity for obedience. Uh, verse 9, so David set out. Now pause. Remember here that he's already had a three-day march to get home, okay? So they're already, you know, a tank, uh, uh, low in the tank, a court low at least. And so they start chasing after these men who have a mysterious head start in front of them to catch them. Verse 9, the 600 men who were with him, they came to the brook of Besor where those uh, who were left behind stayed. Okay. And so it gets to the point where some of them, we'll see it's a third, tap out and say, we just, we can't go any further. 
And so he says, all right, anyone who's able, let's keep going. He leaves those men behind. David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook of Besser. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate, and they gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs, two clusters of raisins. Now notice how descriptive the menu is there, right? It slows down the action entirely and tells us everything that they fed this guy. It's clear that the only reason this is given is because it's a surprisingly compassionate, compassionate note for some strange Egyptian they found dying in a field. Now, David is a good military general. He probably recognizes the significance of an abandoned Egyptian. As we're going to see, this Egyptian was a slave who got sick and couldn't keep up with the march, so his master just left him behind. He knows that there's probably valuable information here. But he doesn't, he doesn't waterboard the guy, right? He nurses him back to health. In fact, notice it says, his spirit revived for he'd not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, a servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We'd made a raid against the Negev of the Cheshurites, which belonged to Judah, against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. And so notice here, the Egyptian tells him that Ziklag was only one of multiple targets. There was a whole area, all of it in Judah, had been attacked, including Ziklag. Verse 15, David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And so he basically says, Will you show me where they were headed? Can you take me where they were going? And he says, as long as you'll spare my life and set me free, yes. So verse 16, when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And so he gets to where they are, and they're not assuming they've been pursued. They've already broken out the spoils, and they're having a big celebration. In fact, uh, the phrase here for eating and drinking and dancing um, speaks of festal. Okay? It's a big party. Um, and so, as you can imagine, they are completely unprepared for being attacked. Even though David only has 400 men, uh, the battle is his because there's no fight. There's no organization. There's, there's very little uh, in the way of uninebriation uh, in this setting. And so verse 17, David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them es escaped except for 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, or sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. And so notice this. That's fascinating, isn't it? Here's this thing that happens while David is away. It's serious. It puts everything he loves and everything his men loves at risk, and they recover all of it. Okay. I don't think we can read this any other way except as an object lesson. Okay. What does God accomplish through this detail here by instilling on the Philistine or on the Amalekites attacking Ziklag? He gets David's attention. He draws David back into listening and prepares him for what's next. And he also um, not only gives David an alibi during the battle of Saul, uh, but also makes sure that he's nowhere near 
He's doing something different. It's not just that he can present in a court of law. I can tell you I'm not the one who was involved in that battle because I was doing this other thing. He also was actually doing this other thing. Um, God has his attention. And so David brings it all back. Verse 20, David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock before them and said, this is David's spoil. And so through this, David is tremendously blessed. His men say, all the livestock we found is yours, David. And so remember here, this isn't just the bounty from Ziklag, which was already their property, but everything else the Philistines had gotten from these other towns. It's a relatively large haul. And so that creates a problem. Verse 21, David came to the 200 men who'd been too exhausted to follow David and who'd been left at the brook Besser. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And David came near to the people and greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we've recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. And so there's these dissenters. They're labeled here as wicked and worthless, or we've seen the phrase before, the sons of Belial. But we're not told that there's anything wicked or worthless about them except for this sentence. And the sentence they say is, look, you didn't come to the fight, you don't deserve any of the spoil, you can have your children and your wife back, that's fine, but nothing else. But the, the narrator here refers to that idea as being wicked and worthless. In contrast, look at how David responds. Verse 23, David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. Okay? And so notice here, his first answer is theological in nature. He says, this isn't spoil that we earned. This isn't things that we deserve. This is God's gift to us, okay? That brings us to this whole idea of what's different with war in Israel and other wars is that God fights for Israel. That's why there were such strict rules set on when they could fight, who they could fight, how they could fight, what happens to the spoil afterwards, okay? All of that was to point out that God was the one who gives the victory. And so David knows that and he says, we can't take the credit for this. And so we cannot make us the deserving and them the undeserving, okay? And so he continues here, he says, he has preserved us and given into our hands the band that came against us. So the second thing he says here is God's given us the two most important things. He's kept our lives and he's defeated our enemies. Everything else is frosting. And so verse 24 he says, who would listen to you in this matter? For as is his share who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. And so he equalizes. He equalizes uh, the spoils across everybody, both those who fought in the battle and those who stayed behind. It reminds me of a parable Jesus tells where a man is hiring workers in the vineyard, and some of them start at 11 a.m., and some of them start at 3 in the afternoon, and some of them start right before quitting time, right at 4 p.m., and only work an hour. And so the uh, owner of the vineyard lines them all up afterwards, and he lines them up in order of those who worked the least to those who worked the greatest, and he starts at the end of the least, the one-hour workers, and he gives them each a full day's wage. And so those who have been there all day look down the line and they go, man, if they're making that much money, he's going to pay us so well. And he walks down the line and he gives an equal amount to each one. And so those who have been there all day complain. And basically the answer the owner of the vineyard gives is, 
did I not pay you fairly? And is not my money to do with what I like? And it seems like because Jesus makes that a parable of the kingdom, we have to remember the significant reality of the fact that, A, the vineyard doesn't belong to us. As we see here, the victory doesn't belong to us. The things that God does for the church, God does. And so the blessings that come along with that are by grace. They can't be demanded or deserved or hoarded or withheld from others. And once again, David just seems so in tune with this. And notice, it becomes the way, the way that spoil is handled from that point on. Verse 25, he made it that day a statute and a rule for Israel. That day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. So he goes one further. He doesn't just share the spoil with the men. He also shares the spoil with the inhabitants of Judah. Because remember, all of these people, some of them were enemies uh, of Israel. Some of them were the Kenites. They're mentioned the Calebites. He doesn't just restore the wealth, he spreads it around in Judah because it's Judah's land. It's Judah's promised land. It's also worth pointing out that in doing so, in doing so, he finally overcomes what we've seen significantly throughout the story, is that Judah is full of people who are standing against David. And so over and over again, it was people living in Judah who came to Saul and said, we know where David is hiding. Come down, we'll help you find him. But here, as he makes this tremendous gift and operates as a ruler of Israel who's just waged holy war on their behalf and now shares the spoil with all of them, um, we're going to see in 2 Samuel that it's Judah who says, we want David as king. Now, you could loosen this up and say that he's basically bribing his way into power, but that's not the case. He's already got the anointing. He's just being generous. And so, notice how many people are impacted by this, verse 27. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir, in Aor, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoa, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Horma, in Boshan, in Akath, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Okay? David and his men had roamed there the last year as they were raiding for the Philistines, okay? And so he, he distributes the wealth accordingly across Judah. Now we can move back to Saul, and we won't return to David until 2 Samuel. That's how David's story closes, with him being back in tune with the Lord, with a tremendous victory, and with him being what a king of Israel should be leading them forward in holy war, sharing the spoils because it's God's gift to Israel. Now we have to close the story of Saul. Chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. So there's no tension, there's no story, it's just instantly told. It's a, it's a washout. It's, it's a total failure, it's a defeat. Verse 2. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. Now, these aren't all of Saul's sons, uh, but it's probably three-quarters of them. There's only one other son that I can remember that we know of, Ephibosheth, uh, who will come back later. But here, notice Jonathan dies in this battle. 
Jonathan, who's been so faithful to the Lord, so faithful to David, here he loses his life just as Samuel said would happen. And then verse 3, the battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Okay, and so get the picture here. He's struck by an arrow and he realizes there's no escape. He's, he's bleeding out. Um, they're, they're coming, they're pressing in on him. Um, and so his fear here is, okay, I am, you know, public enemy number one. If they find me, it's going to be awful. They're going to uh, treat me horribly. They're not just going to kill me. They're going to torture me. They're going to desecrate my remains. I don't want to be handled by my enemies. And so, verse 4, Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it lest these uncircumcised come to me and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Now maybe he has the same sentiment that David does, I will not slay the Lord's anointed. Or maybe it's some broader fear, but once again, we find those who Saul commands saying no. And so he's left to his own devices. And so, therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And so he takes his own life. And actually, I think that's probably a good epitaph for Saul's life. He took his own sword and he fell on it. That's the story of Saul, uh, is that he destroyed his own life with his decisions. Verse 5, when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. So in view of the battlefield are all of these non-combatant cities. And when they watch how this battle plays out and they see the, Israel, uh, the armies of Israel dead, they just, they just leave everything behind. And so the Philistines take over this area as well. Verse 8, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to their people. And so notice here a couple of things. Uh, they find these bodies and they, they decapitate them uh, and then they send out the good news. Ding dong, the king of Israel is dead. Saul is dead. And notice here it's referred to the good news to their idols and to the people. They see this as a divine victory of their gods. Later on, Nathan is going to tell David, because of you, all the nations blaspheme. But that's also the case of Saul. That's just the nature of sin. Here, the Philistines look and they go, here again is evidence the God of Israel is no God at all. Look, we have killed their king. But in actuality, it is Saul and his rebellion and his disobedience that has led to their victory. And so Saul was right to recognize the danger that he was in, leaving himself in the hands of, hands of the Philistines. Even his corpse they desecrate. And not only um, do they decapitate him, but verse 10, they put his armor in the temple of Ashtoreth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. So they strip him down, they decapitate him, and then they nail him to the wall of this city and put him on display. But 
When the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went at night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshean and came to Jabesh and burned them there. Now, Jabesh Gilead, these are the people who initially come to Saul uh, when, when uh, before that pagan king, they've, they've said, basically, just leave us alone and we'll pay you tribute. And he goes, okay, but that tribute's going to include all the right eyes of the men in your camp. And so they go, give us some time to think about it. And Saul comes to their rescue. And God gives them a great victory and, and runs that king out of town. And so here, they're still loyal to Saul. They still remember what he's done. And they know the horrible desecration that's happened to his body. So they come up with a plan. And the strong men, the valiant men, sneak into the night and steal the bodies back. And then they burn, uh, burn the bodies there. Now that's abnormal behavior in the Old Testament for Jews. Um, generally... Generally, bodies are deeply respected, uh, and a funeral pyre, like you would find in India or sometimes in other places in the East, was just not a thing in Israel. And so it, it makes us wonder here why this goes on. Um, it seems most likely it's one of two things. Either it's to avoid there being any danger of further desecration. Because if they bury this body as it is and the Philistines find out, I mean, I know it sounds like uh, college pranks, but they can just dig it up and desecrate it again. Uh, or it may be that this is how they respond to the fact that it's been desecrated. And so the only thing to do now is to burn it. But notice they don't burn the entirety of it, just down to the bones. The flames eat away the flesh. And then verse 13, they took the bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. And so that's how 1 Samuel closes. Now 2 Samuel opens with David hearing about this, with David hearing about the death of Saul and the death of Jonathan and the loss, of, uh, the loss to the Philistines. It picks up right where the action is, but it is a fitting end for the story of Saul. And it's a mixed bag story. Um, it's, it's full of horror, but it has its spots of honor. And here, uh, to their credit, the people of Jabesh Gilead seek to set this right and not let this uh, atrocity stand. So, this is the encouragement I would give you. Saul is always a difficult life to reflect on. And we've already been prepared to make a contrast between Saul and David. Saul, the king that was chosen to the standards of the people, a king like the other kings. And David, a man after God's own heart, because God doesn't look at the outward appearance, but sees the heart. Um, one who rules for himself and puts his fame first, and the other who rules for the Lord, even though he's a human being and he gets it wrong a lot. Uh, in fact, it's hard to say um, that the final chapters of David's life are very positive. They're filled with him just reaping the consequences of earlier poor decisions. Um, but this contrast maintains. And so we'll see, even as we get into uh, First and Second Kings, the descendants of David that reign on the throne, they're going to be compared or contrasted with David or the other kings of who Saul is the prototype. Um, 
And so there's much, I think, for us to learn here. Um, but we need to remember that in some ways, what we've read here is the prequel to the ruling of David, to the plan as God always intended, all the way back from the days of the judges, he's been working towards King David. Uh, and so we'll get to open that new chapter, not without its difficulties, next week. For tonight, let's stop and let's pray. Father, we know that Samuel was grieved by the choices and the hardness of heart of Saul. And we should be too, Lord. And we're especially grieved of where we find commonalities, Lord, of our own self-righteous religiousness, our own hard-headedness, our own foolish sin, our own ability to put the emphasis in all the wrong places. And we know, Lord, that um, we often sometimes have very long seasons of unrepentance and rebellion. But I just ask, God, that you would help us to learn um, from the mistakes of others, that we wouldn't have to follow in the footsteps of those who have fallen, Lord, um, but that we can come to ourselves like the younger brother in the far-off land and say, you know what, in my father's house there's plenty of bread. I will go back home. And we thank you, Lord, for all of the places where you sovereignly guide the lives of your children, making all things work together for the good of those uh, who love God and are called according to his purposes. And sometimes those circumstances are disciplinary, and sometimes they're difficult. Uh, but like in the life of David, you do those things graciously and lovingly to break down our idols and to call us back to your side. I pray, Lord, that we each, each one would be swift, swift to repent, swift to remind ourselves of who you are, swift to hear your voice and respond. And I pray, Lord, in, in whatever area we have, whatever responsibility, whatever authority, uh, that we would choose to rule on your behalf like David, with your input, not for our goals or based on our wisdom like Saul, but uh, for your glory at your bequest, Lord, and that we would recognize that everything we, in, we have in our life uh, is a God-given gift. And even when our work goes well and we're blessed by it, Lord, that is a freely given blessing from your hand and worth all of our gratitude. Help us in all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.